We covered the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, kind of our new study. Samuel follows the book of Judges. Uh, Judges ends with uh, the last judge is Samson, so that's a fun story. And then it ends with this civil war that takes place between uh, the 11 tribes and Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin has uh, done some audacious things, and so as a result, uh, the tribes go to war with them, and this is how the book of Judges ends. Last week, we introduced in those first three chapters of Samuel, uh, Hannah, uh, Samuel, the namesake of the book, and the high priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And the core of last week in those first three chapters was this, um, God is destroying and tearing down the house of Eli. Uh, for their wickedness, for their abominations, and you can go back and listen to that sermon or watch it or whatever you want to do to pick up on those details. But at the same time, as he always does, uh, he is raising up another servant. He's raising up another prophet. And so in the same story, you see the tearing down of the house of Eli, but you see the rise of this young man named Samuel. And I love how chapter 3 is framed because it says at the beginning of chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days in Israel. And then by the end of chapter 3, Samuel is now the established prophet and he is speaking regularly on behalf of Yahweh. Uh, so interestingly enough, however, since the book's named after him, since he's been the subject matter really of those first three chapters, Samuel is only mentioned in chapter 4 and verse 1 where it says, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. That's his only mention in the next three chapters, which we're going to cover today. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Not a person. We're going to talk about primarily an inanimate object. We're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that is some of the subject matter, and so uh, let me explain a little bit before we read about the Ark of the Covenant. It gets its first mention in the, the plans of the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus chapter 25. Here Moses receives instruction regarding how the Ark is to be constructed, uh, what its purposes are, and the proper use. And so I'm going to have these guys throw a picture up here uh, that's on the slideshow. That is just a, a replica. I didn't find that. So that's not like sitting in my garage. Uh, that is a replica of what the Ark of the Covenant uh, would have looked like. The rest of the book of Exodus tells us about its construction, culminates in the, the tablets of the law being placed inside. Those are the ones that Moses received on the mountain. And they're placed in the Ark and they're covered with what is on the top, the mercy seat that rests between the two uh, cherubs that are there hovering their wings. And the significance of this most holy piece of furniture is not that it's overlaid with gold or that it has two angels sitting on top of it. The significance is that the piece of furniture is the place where Yahweh would choose to meet with his people. It's the place where Yahweh's presence would come. He would meet with Moses. He would meet with Israel, bound by the covenant that is represented on the inside of the box with the law that was established and, and the covered by the mercy seat where the blood of that pure sacrifice would be sprinkled on an annual basis to make atonement for the sins of the people. Yahweh would meet with Moses. Book of Numbers chapter 7 or in verse 89, 
I was surprised there were 89 verses in Numbers chapter 7. I thought that has to be a typo. It is not. You can, you can check me on that. But here's what it says. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, speaking of the tabernacle, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. And so in that particular spot, that is where the voice of the Lord would come. Now the ark was carried by a particular clan in the tribe of the priests and it is often referenced to as leading Israel. So think back with me to one particular story we covered earlier in the year where Joshua is now leading Israel. They're about to cross the Jordan River into the promised land and the instructions that Yahweh gives them is have the priest carry the ark to the edge of the Jordan and what happened as soon as the priest stepped into the Jordan River, it parted. The waters heaped up on one side and they were able to walk across on dry ground. What's the significance of that? It represents the leading of Yahweh. He is in control. He is the guiding force for Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is what we're dealing with. And so just for fun, I want to give a little quiz here. This is, this is fun. What other two items were included in the Ark of the Covenant? You had the broken tablets representing the broken law, man's broken covenant. What were the other two things that were included? George, you know one? Aaron's, Aaron's rod that budded, representing, representing, again, protection, faithful protection and faithful authority of Yahweh. And there's one other thing that was in there. This one's a little weird. No, not that one. You got it? Manna, yes. Uh, a sampling of the manna, some of the leftovers, I guess. Uh, they put it in there representing this, God's faithful provision. And so all of those things had a purpose for why they were in the Ark of the Covenant. So it represents Yahweh's covenant with Israel. It was a holy place where Yahweh would commune, make atonement for Israel. It wasn't an idol. It was never said, this is Yahweh. Let's bow and worship this ark. That was definitely not something they would participate in. And so with all that in mind, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to dig into our text today. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses here. Pew Bible, it's 2.13 if you need help getting there. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Verse 1, to get the story started. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. And then it says this, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. 
For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Uh, Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Father, we ask for your help. I ask for your help today. There's some significant truths, God, of who you are in this story. I pray that I I will be able to clearly communicate them and that we will all be able to readily and, and in humility receive them. As has already been prayed this morning, God, use your word. Use your word uh, to awaken our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in our time in the book of Judges, particularly chapters 13 through 15 in the story of Samson, we were introduced to the Philistines. And I told you a little bit about the Philistines during that particular time, that they were considered historically to be a Viking-like group that would travel and they would swoop in and they would just take over particular areas. And they tried to take over Egypt at one point and they failed, but Pharaoh recognized in them some potential and so he began to hire the Philistines as mercenaries. Uh, to fight in some of their wars. And so they began to settle along uh, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Their major cities were Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. This is around 1190 B.C. So about the same time that that Israel is uh, crossing the Jordan River with Joshua in the lead, the Philistines are beginning to settle on the eastern side. And so it is a rivalry in the making that will continue uh, throughout the years of Israel's history. And today's text begins with one of those many battles that they will fight. Uh, the Israelis are there on uh, the Ebenezer's where their camp is, uh, the Philistines at Aphek, and um, they have a battle and Israel loses mightily. 4,000 of their soldiers die in that particular battle. After regrouping in Ebenezer, the elders question why Yahweh would have defeated them before the Philistines. Notice the wording of that. Why has Yahweh defeated us before the Philistines? It wasn't, why did the Philistines uh, wipe us out? It was, why has Yahweh defeated us? Uh, Now, I'm sure, um, I'm not quite sure how the full conversation went, but I'm assuming that that some guy who had maybe a severe concussion came up with the next idea, and the rest of them who had concussions uh, thought it was a good idea, but somebody floated it out there. What we need to do is go to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, get the Ark of the Covenant, bring it here, and then God will give us the victory because his power will be right here with us. And so that's exactly what they do. They go to Shiloh, 
The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they come, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp, and the people are ecstatic. It's, it's pregame mania. They're screaming. They're yelling. They're excited. The Philistines hear it. The Philistines say, what's going on? Somebody says, hey, they brought the Ark, and they go, ah, that's... That's not good because they know the stories. They know of Egypt. They know what this God did to the Egyptians. And so they are terrified, but they also have a resolve. If we're going to die, we're going to die today in battle. And they go to war. And the men of Israel flee before the Philistines. All except for 30,000 of them who die in the battle. It's a bad day for Israel. A tragic day. The tragedy, the real tragedy is verse 11 that says this, the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. And one final blasphemous move that they could have and they should have stopped immediately. These two sons who last week we looked at the specific prophecy that they would die and they would die on the same day they die in the battle with the Philistines. Well, following the battle, the tragedies continue to pile up. A, a fleeing Benjamite soldier on his way home runs through Shiloh, and he speaks of the great defeat. And Eli, the high priest, now 98 years old, blind, he's sitting in his seat uh, there at the gate of the city, and uh, he hears the commotion, and he calls the young man to come over and says, hey, tell me what's going on. Tell me how did it go, my son. And in verse 17, the man recounts this. It says, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons are dead and the ark of God has been taken. And the author is careful to point out that it was upon hearing that the ark of God had been taken that Eli passes out, has a stroke, but he falls over in his seat and he breaks his neck. He goes on to say this, the man was old and he was heavy. He was weighty. Now that weighty word, it, there's, there's, a, there's some play in here in the Hebrew because here in a moment we're going to be talking about the weightiness, the glory of God. And so there's this contrast that's being drawn between Eli, the high priest who was just fat because he had been consuming and consuming upon himself and the glory of God that will come and we'll see in a moment. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. The author quickly whisks us across town to a house in Shiloh where Phineas, who just died, his pregnant wife, gets the news that he's died. The ark has been taken, and she goes into premature labor. And death begins to overcome her. But she's able to deliver the child, and with her last breaths, breath, uh, she offers the name of the child, the, the soon-to-be orphan child, Ichabod. Ichabod. Why the name Ichabod? In verse 22, she, she explains the reasoning. It is this, the glory has departed. The glory has left. The weightiness of God has left Israel. Why? Because the ark is gone. All hope leaves. All of their Joy leaves. I also want to mention that, that most 
Historians and scholars believe that in pursuing the Israelites, the Philistines destroy the city of Shiloh. The city is never again mentioned as a worship center for Israel. The Ark of the Covenant never comes back to the city of Shiloh. In fact, Jeremiah, a couple of hundred years later, will say this in speaking on behalf of Yahweh, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. I destroyed it. It wasn't just the house of Eli that would be destroyed. It was any remnant of the house of Eli, even where they lived, no longer. I've brought it to nothing, Yahweh says. And so we end here with Ichabod. It's over the end for Israel, this hopelessness. In chapter 5, we follow the inanimate object, the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines take the ark into their city of Ashdod, which is about 19 miles uh, south down the coast from the Battle of Ebenezer. And in celebration of this incredible victory, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their god, Dagon. Dagon has brought us the victory. Let's put the Ark in his temple. Now you might remember that Dagon was, there was a temple in Dagon that they brought Samson into uh, a generation or two earlier, and they were celebrating the victory over Yahweh when Samson brought the house down, killing 3,000 of them in a temple to Dagon. Well, Samson's not there. They put the ark in the temple the next morning when the worshipers arrive at the temple to give homage. Dagon is face down in front of the ark of the covenant. Well, that's strange, I'm sure they say. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's fix this. Let's get him put back where he goes. And notice chapter 5, verse 3. This is incredible wording. It says, so they, the people, the worshipers, took Dagon and put him back in his place. What? They put their God back where he goes. And they went about their day. They went about their night. The next morning they show back up into their temple to pay their homage and to worship. And lo and behold, they find Dagon again face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. But something's off with Dagon this time. It's his head. He's been decapitated. His arms have been dismembered. He's lying in pieces on the floor. Those pieces are laying on the threshold of the doorway entering the temple. Only the trunk of Dagon is what is left of him. Yahweh has, has dismembered their puny God before them. Out of respect for their dismembered deity, the future worshipers, the author clues us into this, uh, would not step on the threshold when entering into their temple from that point forward. It's like the thing, don't step on a crack because you'll break your mom's back. Don't step on the threshold because your God may get dismembered or something like that again. Uh, it became a ritual for them in recognition of this particular defeat. I love that. I love this story. I just love that particular scene. That's one of the things I wish I could have been there to hear what they're saying and how they're responding to this. But it doesn't end there. The text goes on to say this in verse 6, that the hand of Yahweh was heavy against the people of Ashdod. They were terrified. They were afflicted with tumors. With tumors. 
both Ashdod and its, and its territory beyond. And so the leaders of Ashdod, they gather the Philistine leaders together, these five heads over these five major cities, and they talk about the Ark of Israel, and they say, this thing has to go. And so they send it to the city of Gath. And guess what happens in the city of Gath? Tumors, affliction. And so they decide, we don't want it here. Let's send it to Ekron. And the people of Ekron say, you're not bringing that thing into our city. We don't want it. And so the leaders of the Philistines gather again and agree that capturing the ark was probably not the best idea they've ever had and that they need to figure out a way to get it back. As we move into chapter 6, we learn that seven months has passed from the battle point and the Philistine rulers have called on their priests and their diviners to try to help them to determine what are we supposed to do with this thing. And they come up with a pretty wacky plan. Send it back to Israel, but we can't send it back empty. We need to send it with some sort of a guilt offering saying, hey, we're sorry for messing with you. And so the guilt offering they come up with it includes five golden tumors. You know you're well in paganism at this point, representing uh, the five uh, kings over the five rulers over those five cities, and then the tumors that were afflicting the people. And then there's this one, five golden rats. Well, well, why rats? It's not even really mentioned in this story. What is supposed, and I think this is a, a, an excellent theory, the rats were the delivery mechanism for the plague that was plaguing the people. Some scholars think the tumors may have been the swelling in the armpits, groin, neck, lymph node area. The bubonic plague delivered by rats. Isn't that amazing? I mean, th this could be one of the first documented instances of the bubonic plague. Yahweh using it to plague the people here in this particular instance. Symptomatic of that, rats, the carriers of those things. And the next verse tells of the ark being loaded on a cart. Along with the box that's carrying the golden tumors and the golden rats, and they put it on the cart. And the priests and the diviners, they're still not convinced that it's Yahweh that's bringing this judgment to them. And so they come up with a plan of how they can test this out. And so they say, let's get, let's get two cows who have just given birth. These two cows can also have never had a yoke placed on them. And so they, they hook these two cows up to a yoke. And if you've ever worked with cattle before, you know that that's test number one. If they've never been yoked before, they're not going to work very well together. They're going to be cantankerous. They're not going to like it. The second test is this. They've just, give, just given birth to calves. They're not going to want to leave their calves. And so this is the twofold test. What are these cows going to do when we hook them up to the cart? Will they go? Will they stay? And what happens? they immediately begin to move towards the border of Israel. They don't look to the right. They don't look to the left. They head straight for the village of Beth Shemesh, the house of Shemesh. And the lords of the Philistines follow along. They want to see what's happening as this unfolds. Well, the villagers of Beth Shemesh, they are out harvesting in their fields when one of them must have noticed or heard these cows. They see a cart. They see the Ark of the Covenant on top of the cart. And this is, a, this is a, a, a village that's given to the Levites. And so these are people of the priestly tribe. And they see this and they recognize what's happening. And so uh, they rejoice and they celebrate as this cart comes to stop near a big rock that's there in the field of some guy named Joshua. Well, what do they do? 
They unhook the cows. They take the ark off. They chop up the cart. They sacrifice the cows on top of the wood that they made there. And they offer this as an offering to the Lord. Now there's a hint here that these men, even though they're of the priestly tribe, were quite ignorant of the law and the code they were meant to follow. The ark should have been immediately covered. It's not something that's meant to be on open display for everyone to see. This is a holy piece that represents Yahweh. And they didn't offer suitable sacrifices. Cows were not the sacrifice. Bulls were meant to be the sacrifices. And we can say, hey, hey, they were just doing the best they could in the moment that they had. They wanted to rejoice. They wanted to celebrate. But what happens next really seals the deal. Evidently, these guys had never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. They didn't know what happens when you open up the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't have Indiana Jones there to say, shut your eyes, don't open your eyes, uh, to be a hero to them. It says this in verse 19. Yahweh struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the Ark of the Lord. Looked upon, looked into, he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. These guys looked into the Ark of the Covenant. They touched it in the process, sealing their fate. And just as Yahweh had struck down many of the Philistines, He strikes down His own people in this instance. And their response is sure, it's quick. They say this, who can stand before Yahweh? Where do we get this? Get rid of this thing. We, we, we don't want it here. Where do we send it? This thing has to go. And the chapter ends with the ark being taken to Kiriath Jerem. That's about five miles away from Beth Shemesh. And it's placed in the house of Abinadab under the care of, of his son Eliezer, where it remains for 20 years. And during that time, chapter 7, verse 2, tells us that Yahweh causes Israel to mourn. They mourn losing the ark. They mourn their sin. They mourn what took place at Shiloh. They mourn the 70 men of Beth Shemesh. But mainly they mourn this, their own sin. And it says this, it ends with these words of hope that they begin seeking Yahweh. A revival is coming. In so many of these stories we've covered over the years, we've, we've talked about this variety of humans that are engaging. This story doesn't really have any humans. It's, it's the ark. And I, I want to show a map up here. I just want you to be able to kind of see this, uh, the trajectory of the ark. There's Shiloh to begin with on this side of the screen. And they take it to Ebenezer. Uh, it goes to Aphek where the Philistine camp was. They bring it to Ashdod. Ashdod gets rid of it, sends it to Gath. Gath sends it to Ekron. Then they ship it with some cows into Beth Shemesh and then ultimately it's taken to Kirith Jerem until the time of David when he'll bring it back into the captured city now, the Israelite city of Jerusalem. And uh, they rejoice in that. But as I was saying, uh, the temptation that we face as we've gone through Joshua, Judges, and, and these historical books is we see these sometimes extraordinary characters. Um, and we think, man, what a hero. 
mean, even last week, the temptation is to look at Samuel and say, man, Samuel is a hero. In comparison to these wicked sons of Eli, we, we look at these individuals. You could go back and say that of Moses or Joshua, uh, Ruth or Boaz, Deborah, Ehud, Samson. Uh, but, but the issue we come back to is obviously that all of these fail ultimately in some regard. All of them are, are imperfect, but in some instances they point us to something significant, someone significant that is to come. We could conclude that apart from Yahweh's faithfulness, His power, uh, His goodness, Israel would have disappeared from existence dozens of times over. It would have been done. Ichabod would have been written and it was over. But the unique thing about today's story is this. There's no possible human heroes mentioned, is there? There's zero chance of us mistaking that somebody swooped in to save the day with their wisdom, their power, their courage. We don't read of, of Samuel busting through the enemy lines of the Philistines and saying, you leaders, let the ark go. I'm taking it with me. We don't read of any of that. None of it at all. Every human mentioned in our story today fails. The elders of Israel fail massively. Let's bring the ark here. What a great idea. Hophni and Phinehas fail. The Philistines themselves fail. And the men at Beth Shemesh, the Levites, fail. It's clear after reading chapters 4 through 6 that Yahweh is the hero. And here's a point I want to make from that. It means this. Yahweh doesn't need us. He didn't need a Joshua. He didn't need a Moses. He used a Joshua. He used a Moses. He doesn't need us. Remember that line from, from chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. <laughs> Yahweh doesn't need us. Christ doesn't need us to pick him up and put him back in his place. That's not a requirement. That's not something we have to do. He accomplishes his purposes despite of us. Uh, go with me to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 568. Isaiah 46. Written a few hundred years after this particular event. Isaiah speaking to an Israel that is fading further and further away from Yahweh says this. Isaiah 46 verse 1, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop and they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Just kind of remind you of Dagon on his face before Yahweh. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. You had nothing to do with this, he says. Even to your old age, I am he, and the gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you. I will bear. I will carry and will save. So to whom will you liken me? and make me equal. Who are you going to compare me to that, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from their purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and they worship. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it and they set it in its place 
and it stands there, it cannot move from its place. And if one cries to it, it does not answer or save them from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind your transgressions. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. And I say that my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I call a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I've spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. I want to consider a couple of things with you. We'll talk a little more about some of this next week as we look at chapter 7. But today, two particular points. The first one is this. We have to recognize from what's said in Isaiah 46, from what we've looked at in 1 Samuel 4 through 6, Yahweh is holy. He's holy. He's not like you and me. He's different. He's distinct. In the book of Judges, we chuckled a little bit at a couple of scenes. The, the time when Gideon was interacting with the angel of the Lord and the time when uh, Manoah, Samson's dad, was interacting with the angel of the Lord. And at that moment when they realized who they had been talking to, who they had been dealing with, what, what was their response? Oh, I'm going to die. I'm dead. I've been with the Lord. And we kind of we laugh a little bit at that in the comic of that but it's not really that funny. Those are moments to consider. They were fearful because they recognized they had been in the presence of holiness. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, what is his response? I am undone. I'm in pieces. When Peter interacts with Jesus, one of those first occasions, and they're in the boat, Jesus says, hey, throw the nets over here. Let's see if we can get some fish. We've been fishing all night, Jesus. Haven't caught anything. Whatever, we'll just do it. And they pull in a, a whole boat full of fish. You remember Peter's response? Leave me. I'm a sinful man. He comes undone in the presence of the holiness of Christ. The men at Beth Shemesh eventually got it right when they said, who can stand before Yahweh? It took the death of 70 of their, 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 their neighbors their family members, to get them to the point to understand the holiness of God better late than never. In our Western Christian mindset, um, we are very good at domesticating God. Domesticating Yahweh, domesticating Christ. Just, just a couple of weeks ago, this hit me. I was uh, teaching there in South Dakota, and I had this lesson on, on anger. And in the lesson on anger and our struggle with anger, I talked about Christ in the Gospels. And a couple of scenes, that one where he flips the tables over because he's angry. The other is Mark 3, where they bring the man with the withered hand into the synagogue, and they, they're trying to trip him because it's the Sabbath, and if Jesus heals on the Sabbath, uh, then he's broken the law, and we've got him. It says that Jesus looks at them. He knows what they're doing, and he is furious, and he's full of rage. 
And I was, I was describing that and painting that picture and even realizing in that moment, so often I think I understand Jesus' anger. I think I get it. Or, or I think I understand the wisdom of God and I think, oh yeah, now it makes sense. I got it put together. Or even the, the, the massive love that he has. And I think, yep, I've got it cracked. We're nowhere near understanding. He is holy. We cannot comprehend him. To this point, Dale Ralph Davis writes, he says, our culture doesn't help us to smash our grave image of the casual God. Our culture proclaims that God must be the essence of tolerance. He's chummy rather than holy. He's the man upstairs rather than the Father for Jesus' sake. And so long as our novelty license plates declare that God is my co-pilot, we can be sure that we have not seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. How then do we respond to such holiness? How did Isaiah respond? Fear? Overcome with fear? Just like Gideon, just like Manoah? There's a fear that leads us into humility, to recognizing that, that I, am, I am not who I need to be. I can't stand in his presence. I come undone. Well, that humility then leads us to repentance to a recognition that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And something significant has to change. The Philistines didn't take that step, did they? Did they experience fear at the hand of Yahweh? Yeah. Did they get humbled by Yahweh? Yes. But they sent him away and they went right back to their false gods. I think a lot of us do that every time we open up the Bible. Every time we gather together as a church, we look him in the face, we see, and we send him away, and we go right back home, back to our week, back to our gods. It should result in reverent worship. It should result in us remembering who he is, rejoicing in who he is, and even getting to a point of rest. Resting in who he is. Let me read to you what Job, how Job responded to Yahweh. This is at the end of Job, and you may remember that at the very end of Job, after all of these ailments, God comes to Job in a whirlwind and asks him 72 questions that he cannot answer. And here's Job's response to that. He says this, Yahweh, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Just what Isaiah just wrote. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Notice what he says here. This isn't great for the self-esteem, but he says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent with dust and ashes. That's meant to be our response to a holy God. But how do we get to that point of rest? 
I mean, when we truly have an experience with a holy God, there's a lot of us that just wants to run <laughs> in fear. How do we get to that point where we, we find rest in him? We're compelled to stay near him. Look, look back at those, those closing verses or think back with me, those closing verses, 1 Samuel 7-2, Isaiah 46. 1 Samuel 7-2, we read of how Yahweh is now softening the hearts of the people. He's drawing the people back to himself. Isaiah closes that remarkable chapter with these words, listen to me, stubborn of heart, that's us. Listen to me, you who are far from righteousness, that's us. I bring near my salvation, my righteousness. It's not far off. He says, my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. You see what he does at the end of both of those? He promises he promises hope. It leads to the second point. Yahweh wants us. We've already made it abundantly clear. He does not need us. But what is clear, not just in this story, but in the whole of the Bible and in our own experiences in life, He wants us. In that ark that was sitting there, you know, with Dagon laying horizontally in front of it, Inside were the, the, the broken tablets of the law representing Israel's failure. You remember that? I mean, he had, Moses had just gotten them and he came off the mountain and they were already breaking the law of Yahweh and, and he throws them down and breaks them and they're put in the ark representing how Israel fails to keep the law. But over that law, the broken law is a mercy seat. A seat of mercy where for decades the blood of innocent animals had been sprinkled making atonement for man's inability to hold up to his end of the covenant. Time and time again. Yahweh could have written Israel off time and time again, but there is something that keeps him coming back. Compassion. Mercy. It's just who he is. There's nothing about Israel that demands our compassion or his compassion. There's nothing about Israel that demands his mercy. But God, Yahweh, again and again is compelled to intervene and to rescue Israel. He could have let those cows take the ark and just wander off into the sunset, never to be seen again. But he wasn't done. He came back. He worked his way through the Philistine cities and he came back for his people, the people he loved. Because he's rich in mercy. He brings the mercy seat back. To Israel. We'll see his mercy again as he softens the heart of Israel, preparing them for another revival that we'll deal with next week in chapter 7. 
We see that promise of continued mercy in Isaiah 46 where he says, my righteousness and salvation are coming. They will not delay. Imagine, imagine being those men in the field that day. 70 days earlier, they just lost it all. Yahweh's gone. And they're just toiling along, harvesting their crops. And they hear a moo or something. And they look up and they see the ark. Everything that would represent for them. He's back. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't abandon us even though we were the, the stupid ones who violated his law time and time again and lost him in a battle. He came back for us. He wants us. Now imagine another scene with me. You're on the banks of the Jordan River and you're watching John baptize your buddy. All of a sudden you see his wild, crazy eyes following a man walking along the shore. His face is overcome with fear for a moment, but then joy as he exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What's the expectation there? Same truth. He hasn't abandoned us. He came, he came back. He wants us. He's here for us. The Word became flesh so that He could be amongst us. Growing up, I heard a lot of sermons and and talk about the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. How it's in Israel. I had a pastor that said at one point, uh, somebody told him, it's, you're, you're standing 50 feet away from it. You can go online and you can research this and there's articles and videos about how it's in Ethiopia, how it's in India, how it's all sorts of places, what the ark represents. Somebody was telling me this week they saw a History Channel episode where they talked about how the ark is believed by some to have been this radioactive ball. That's how it gave tumors to people and did all the crazy things that it did. It's some sort of ancient power source. Even when I was in Israel last year, they were talking about and asking questions about the Ark of the Covenant. Do they have it? Where is it at? And I'll be honest, it would be kind of cool if somebody found the Ark of the Covenant, but I'm going to be equally honest and say, I don't really care if they find the Ark of the Covenant. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant. There's no purpose for the Ark of the Covenant anymore. We have Christ. He is the Ark. He's the Ark in the Noah sense that guides us and brings us to safety. He's the ark in the ark of the covenant sense because he is our mercy seat. He accomplishes what we could never accomplish. As Isaiah promised, he said this, the righteousness of God has come. Isaiah 46. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter three. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known 
apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness of it. What's Paul talking about? The whole context is this, Jesus. The righteousness of God that Isaiah says is coming, Paul says it's come, it was Jesus. Jesus is the ark. They're suspended between a holy God and sinful man who have broken covenant time and time again. Jesus sheds his blood on the cross making full and complete satisfaction for our sins. There's no need for any other sacrifice the author of Hebrews would write. And so today, realize that Yahweh doesn't need you, but you desperately need Him. You desperately need a Savior. And then look up from toiling along in the cursed fields, feeling alone, maybe even feeling abandoned. And behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And remember this truth. He wants you. He wants you.